So many people come up to me because um, I've been so open about having cancer. Then they say, my sister had breast cancer and so I understand. And I'm like, did she, is she okay? It, she got through it. It did come back two years later and she didn't make it. I keep hearing this two, 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 two years it came back, two years it came back. And so I have this fear that it's gonna come back. I'm trying to live um, my life as if, you know, I only had two. Welcome to What's Underneath, the podcast that will inspire you to accept the skin you're in and step into your most whole, powerful self. I'm Lily Mandelbaum, and sitting next to me is my mom, Elisa Goodkind, and we are the creators of Style Like You. In our podcast, we bring you the extended interviews from our video series, The What's Underneath Project, in which diverse role models strip down to open up and claim the power of the skin they're in. The first step to self-acceptance is being radically honest about the things you're ashamed of, and by listening to these stories, you are tapping into the healing power of vulnerability, truth sharing, and the unshakable bravery to be yourself. You are giving yourself permission to recognize that you are completely beautiful and enough as you are. In honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, this week's episode of What's Underneath is made possible with the support of Spring Health. Spring Health is breaking barriers to mental health by providing employers with a comprehensive and effective solution to employee mental well-being. Follow us on Instagram at stylelikeyou and at spring.health to learn more about our partnership and how you can join in on our mental health awareness campaign. Hey, everyone. Hey, everyone. We are excited to be here with the third episode from our mental health awareness month series of What's Underneath with an amazing episode featuring Angela Trimber. This episode is part of our partnership with Spring Health, an incredible organization that's helping to eliminate barriers to mental health in the workplace. And together with them, we're doing two months of What's Underneath episodes that are centering around mental health awareness. And we're also going to be hosting an amazing event with them next month. For those of you that haven't heard about it, we will be inviting you all to share your What's Underneath stories together with this community. And one or two of you will get the chance to actually sit on the What's Underneath stool and have a full interview. Um, and, and we'll be announcing more details about that event uh, shortly. And stay tuned and follow us along on Instagram at stylelikeyou and at spring.health for more info on that event and how you can be involved and connect more with this community. That's something that we dream of doing so much more of is bringing you all together because every time we meet a Style Like You listener, we just can't help but think that you all would be best friends. There'll also be workshops, a workshop around at the event. Everyone will be able to participate in a What's Underneath style workshop. So we're really excited about the episode this week with Angela, who is a breast cancer survivor and has an incredibly inspiring story of growing up as a child of Jehovah's Witness and having a pretty isolated experience as a kid that drove her really deep into her imagination in terms of her style and in terms of dancing and in terms of acting, which she's now presently an, an actor in Los Angeles and has really been transformed and, and developed this really strong will to live from having breast cancer after, you know, struggling really hard to want to live from many of the experiences of her childhood. 
among the things that she's learned from breast cancer is just the ability to say no, to draw boundaries, and to put herself first in order to heal. And that's something that Lily and I are really confronting a lot in our lives right now in relationship to everything, including work balance and each other and with friends and family and all over the place. And we really deeply recognize the need for the right kind of boundaries, how much better you feel when you have them. And that's something that Angela developed um, during breast cancer. And one of our favorite lines in the interview is how she talks about pre-breast cancer. She thought that to be liked was kind of being this alpha type who, you know, kind of knew what everybody needed, like what kind of haircut they needed or what kind of shoe they needed to buy. Since breast cancer and since the pandemic, her vulnerability has become her edge and her humility and her respect for the larger purpose of life and connection to source and ritual and all of that. And these are all the things that gave her a lot of strength and getting her through this experience. So there's lots more, but at least that gives you like a little bit of what you're in store for because it's she's super inspiring. And I just also want to mention for any of you that are sensitive to topics or triggered by topics related to sexual assault or suicide, this episode does contain both of those topics. So please be mindful of that as you proceed. And otherwise, we hope you really enjoy Angela's episode. It's one of like the triumph of joy. And I mean, that's one thing she also talks a lot about is how she healed through joy and and always prioritized joy throughout the like depths of the loss and the suffering and grieving that she was doing during her battle with cancer. She always prioritized dancing and rituals with her friends and things that really brought her joy and that that really buoyed her through the hard, really intense moments that she had to face. So I hope that really uplifts you all and that you are inspired by Angela's journey. We really appreciate your support, your being here. We hope that you're having a chance to watch all the our new videos and as well. And always would love to hear from you, especially a more direct communication would be through Instagram, although leaving comment about the podcast is also super helpful to us. And yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And we're very much appreciate our community and your being there. So sending lots of love to you. Enjoy. Can you just start by talking about how you're feeling right now? I'm feeling um, a bit raw. I have not had a lot of human interaction like this from the pandemic and especially face-to-face in real life, deep conversations about what I've been feeling for the last few years. So raw in a way that feels like this is like the, the cut of the wound and it's opening up to like have, have the bleeding and <laughs> um, so raw in that sense that I feel like I know this is gonna be a, a heavy conversation, um, but I'm ready for it. So can you talk a little bit about what your style says about you? Um, my style is uh, very 90s. I pretty much only wear vintage clothes from the 90s. I feel very sentimental about my childhood. And in the 90s, I was a teenager. My mom was very religious. She was a Jehovah's Witness, and so we weren't allowed to uh, be in the real world. We had no idea what fashion was. We were really um, 
isolated. And so my sister and I were, were homeschooled and my only way of knowing what fashion was at the time was to, when my parents weren't home, like sneak watching My So-Called Life. That was my favorite show. And so I'm like, Angela Chase, that's how she dresses. And it was always my dream to have those things. And so now, I think that's why, I don't know why, but I just feel safe and um, I feel sentimental. I feel like I'm sort of taking taking control of the way I wish that I could have dressed when I was a teen and just doing it now. Um, it makes me feel safe. I listen to all 90s music and that's the, the yeah, my, my password for so long was like, I love the 90s, 90. Like, I'm like, it's fine, it's not anymore. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just, I, I don't know why, because the, my time as a teenager, that, that was, is not the way I would raise my children. Um, and I, it was, there was a lot of trauma there, obviously, like everyone, but um, I still look back really fondly and I have very vivid feelings from it. And so um, re recreating that or, or seeing, seeing like my closet, like I have all the floral dresses in one closet and just seeing them for some reason just brings me it feels like full circle. I, I would rather look like um, an approachable bookish girl um, than some chic, uh, tall, glamour queen. If I'm going to a party and everybody there is pretentious, I get really nervous and I'm like, don't ask me, don't ask me if I've seen this thing. Please don't bring up that author. Don't say a word I don't understand because I then I have to make the decision if I'm gonna say, oh, I don't know what that word means or if I'm gonna be, mm. So I get really nervous when I'm about to be around people that I admire and would love to think naturally that way, but I don't. And so I'm sure that that is linked to why I feel, I would feel like an imposter kind of in right. fancy clothing. I feel like I've been in sweatpants and comfortable soft things for the last, you know, since 2018 when I was diagnosed, just constantly at home healing. So now I feel, and I'm getting rid of everything that I owned before, um, selling everything. Um, all of this is, has been purchased in the last, you know, week or month. Um, it's all brand new things to me. I just don't want to see anything that had to do with my my life before um, before cancer and before pandemic and before all these new feelings and feeling like a brand new person. Um, even if it's a lateral, that's just another floral dress. I just don't want to see anything visually that I've seen before. So I'm just getting rid of it all and just adding new. So can you talk about assumptions that people make about you based on your appearance? hard to say what other people might think because I don't I don't know um, but what I hope is that they see um, an approachable person that they would like to hang out with I feel like I'm not ever trying to be sexy looking and um, maybe one day I will but I feel well when I was homeschooled for so long it was fifth grade through 11th grade so pretty formative times, you know? And then I went to my senior year in high school. Um, I was so excited to be social and talk to everybody. And the first day of school, I, I got beat up because I was talking to some girl's um, boyfriend. And I had long blonde hair then, and I, I was, you know, beautiful to in that way at the time. And um, I figured out that the best way to get girls to like me at the time was to not 
even like not don't even pay attention to the men and don't dress sexy and so I think I perhaps carried that over into now which of course it might not be a healthy thought but I just like to when I say approachable I mean I don't intimidate anyone with the way that I look um I want it to seem I want to feel inviting as a person so what was it like to suddenly be, go to school, to be with other kids? Like You weren't with other kids all the way through? To... No, but you, uh, when you're a Jehovah's Witness, you're only allowed to hang out with other Jehovah's Witnesses. And if you're talking to anyone that's not, they're considered worldly, um, you're supposed to just be kind of preaching to them. Um, so the only people that I saw during that time were um, other Jehovah's Witnesses. And I never really fit in with them either. But I always remain, you know, before my mom became a Jehovah's Witness and started homeschooling my kids or her kids, um, I was, you know, the most fun. I was in all the plays. I was, I was organizing things. I had at recess, it would be the rabbits club. And this was when I was in second grade. It's read a book, bring it to school. You know, I always was trying to get, formulate social circles. Um, and so through being a Jehovah's Witness, I always kind of stayed in that world, but by myself. So I spent a lot of time in my bedroom, in front of my mirror, pretending there was a, a room full of people and I would just spend hours pretending I was at a party and even like someone like pushing me in front of a guy and I'm like, <laughs> um, hi, you know, like I just went through as if I just was always social. I never stopped being social, even if it was imaginary. Um, and so when I went back to school, it was just like, wow, real people, hi, 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 hi. Oh, you know, wow, you raise your hand and that's how this works, that's so cool. What's a laugh pass? Like, I think I just kind of had such a, like a wide-eyed naiveness that um, was positive and so it was welcomed. I was like voted class clown and um, I was on the homecoming court. Like I worked, I, I felt like I was like, okay, I haven't lost it. I still have that um, social butterfly that I hope never died. So it was kind of, it was really fun. Even getting beat up on my first day of school. It was funny too, because as I'm approaching, because the girl was like, do you want to hang out after school? And, and I was like, yeah, she seems so cool. And I was like walking up with my uh, backpack and there's a bunch of people around the tree and I'm like whoa this is this is so cool and then it was like quit talking to my man got a punch and then so and everyone walked away and you'd think that would be this like traumatic like oh like I can't believe it I put myself out there but I I felt so alive and and happy for any kind of um interaction even that and so I remember going back into the the bathroom in the school and like washing my mouth out and like I like smiled really big in the mirror with like a mouthful of blood just because it was like here I am like I am in the world and I'm excited for any kind of, any kind of interaction even even music I wasn't allowed really to listen to music um, so I feel like I mean I knew like the Beatles and stuff but I hadn't heard like um, Pink Floyd until, you know, I was 25. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, what, Pink Floyd? So I, I um, I'm feel really far behind. Um, even still, I feel kind of far behind because um, all the books that everybody read, all the things everyone learned history-wise um, is not in my, my soul because my mom wasn't, she was homeschooling us, but she wasn't really. She um, had jobs and we would be by ourselves all day long and, um, she kind of just let let us like she taught us like per 
procrastination is a great thing actually it's a way that you control your own schedule and it's up to you to finish something and so here's your schoolwork and do it whenever you want and so there's not much structure that i hold on to and so i think that's another reason why i feel paranoid and around intellectual people because I feel so far behind from that being a natural way of thinking. Um, I'd rather I'd rather talk um, about your feelings and um, you know anything else other than you know um, I don't know who you're wrote afraid Moby Dick. You're, you're afraid that you're going to be like judged or you're or, or I'm afraid I'll, I'll be seen as stupid. Um, yeah, so. Even sometimes um, if there's a movie I haven't seen that it's like, wow, you're an actress and you haven't seen that movie. You know, it's just I feel like shame around the lack of research I've done to catch up to where everyone else is. I'm excited to get out into the world now after having done so much healing um, and studying pretty much since quarantine. I've been studying nonviolent communication because I think that that is another insecurity of mine is um, lacking the ability to express exactly how I feel with the right with the right intention. Um, so studying nonviolent communication is all about expressing your needs um, in a way that doesn't make the other person feel attacked, or um, even saying like you make me feel misunderstood. That's a that's a diagnosis on what they're like on myself and on them. Um, it's just um, learning how to like everyone has the same basic human needs, you know, food, water, shelter, that, but also non-physical needs to be loved, to be respected, to have dignity. When there's conflict, it's because you you're, we're not expressing them right. Even with apologies, he says you don't say you don't you're not supposed to say I'm sorry. I was wrong. You say, I feel sad that um, my respect, I, my actions didn't align with my respect for you. I'm, I'm so excited to get into the world with all of these, this new knowledge that I have because I do feel like my natural instinct is to be defensive a lot. I spent a lot of my time being defensive as, as one does when they feel like their character is I've misunderstood. What would you say is the biggest insecurity that you have worked on overcoming or that you have overcome? Not knowing how to express my myself. Um, yeah, I feel very misunderstood most of my life. Um, I think I also suffer with um, misophonia, which is um, it's uh, an audio sensitivity disorder where you hate specific sounds. Um, so I, mine is um, gum chewing or any kind of mouth sounds, um, the sounds of kissing even. Um, even a foot going like this in my peripheral vision, like I have to kind of like move my hair to cover it. Um, if I'm on set and the boom operator is chewing gum, I'm not focused and ready. Like it's a fight or flight mode. And I've had it my whole life. Um, when I have to tell someone, you know, if I'm in a car and I'm going on a road trip with a group of girls and one's chewing gum, I have to like say, hey, I have this thing. And um, and it it is it comes from trauma. Like I um, 
I was raped when I was 13 in the back of a car and the, the guy was chewing gum and it was in my ear. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure I had misophonia before that, um, but that, like, that just kind of amplified it, um, specifically with gum. And so I just feel insecure in that um, I, ha or I have so many things that I have to go through just to be social. Just to be at ground zero. Yeah, just to not be in fight or flight mode. Um, um, I feel like people would judge if I asked them to take their gum out, even like they would think I was a diva, like controlling people. Um, I just felt so low and I, um, I did try to take my life. Um, and I just wanted to stop all the chaos in my head and all the overthinking. And I tried to hang myself in my closet. And um, I wrote a check out for the exact amount of money in my bank account from to my sister and I put it in the mail and I wrote letters to everybody and um, just tried to hang myself. And I had a stool kind of like this. And um, when I would go for it, my toes were, it was a little too short so I could always save myself with my toes. and. I just kept doing it and I was like, bitch, just tuck those knees. Like, just tuck them, your, tuck your knees. Like, and I just couldn't do it. And so I felt like it was like um, just that little bit of height <laughs> that I always felt so short. So in this moment, I was like, I don't know. I just thought it was some sort of sign um, that it, since I kept trying, even in that moment, I just couldn't. So <sighs> really trying to go from someone that was ready to take her own life from feeling so misunderstood to then fighting for my life when being diagnosed um, with cancer. It's, I've been doing so much, so much deep work on healing myself just to go from someone like that to someone fighting. Um, and also when you have cancer, you are supposed to stay as stress-free as possible. Cancer, you know, can grow from the stress. So all the doctors said that, just stay as stress-free as possible. And I was never a stress-free person before cancer, like an insecurity that I have now that, that I've worked through, um, through quarantine with my therapist is the, um, that I feel like I lost my edge, I would say. I feel like I lost my edge with cancer. And what I meant by that is like, I used to be very alpha. I used to, you know, think that being being in control and like, you know, like knowing what, what's, what's the best for everybody. Like you should do this with your hair. You would look so much better. Like I was like that person and edge, like, you know, dance captain and like in charge of things and have a vision and, and, and I don't have that anymore. And I would tell her that I miss that about myself. I'm like, I feel like I'm not as strong anymore. I feel like I'm just so small and um, way more vulnerable and and so through some very beautiful conversations I had with her she's like don't you think that you're more edgy now and it, it, you've, your edge now is the fact that you have learned how to be so grateful that you don't have to put walls up and you don't have to be in control and that you're that's not edge that actually this is edge now can you talk like about the 
moment you got diagnosed and like that just like take us through the beginning of that journey just only making money as an actress which to me is like a success (laughs) um I felt like like I had that edge like I was talking about earlier like I felt like I had I at least had a protective energy where I felt like ready for anything and and um that's how I felt right before I was diagnosed my boyfriend had felt a lump um when he because sometimes I'd be like, God, a breast massage feels so good. Um, so instead of like a foot rub or something, I'm like, could you give me a breast massage? And so he would always be giving me breast massage. And I'm like, right here, it's like, and so he'd be like rubbing the spot and I'm like, oh, like drool because it felt so good to be massaged. And he's like, I feel, it feels like a lump. And, and I'm, you know, everyone's lumpy and whatnot. And so I never, I, when I went to the doctor for a cold um, while I was there, I was like, oh yeah, by the way, like, and there's this like lump and the doctor was like do you, do you have your period uh recently yeah it's it's that all women have lumps in their breasts you know and didn't even feel it and i was like okay yeah probably it's true everyone has dense breasts or, or some people do and then cut to a year later i'm getting a pap smear and she's going like this and she's pausing in that area and i was like no and then she's like this is something when she did the uh ultrasound on it and immediately said, you need to go to the, um, get a biopsy. So I got a biopsy, um, had this really kind of beautiful marbleized huge bruise on my breasts from the, from getting the mammogram and the biopsy and had it all weekend. And so that whole weekend, I just, I was really open with people about it too. I'd be like, look at this bruise. Like, I gotta buy it. Like, I, I've never was um, quiet about it. I was always just like, yeah, I might, I might. Isn't that crazy? I wouldn't say I was freaking out. I think I was trying desperately to, to f- tap into my intuition and, and just be like, do I have it? Like check in with myself and then see if I was right or wrong. I feel like I'm always trying to test what's paranoia and what's intuition. But I felt in my, I truly had no idea. It was a pure 50-50 and uh, the morning that I had the, that I was dying or that I had to go in, cause they, they don't do it over the phone. You have to go in to find out, I think, at least with um, Cedars. Um, so I had, um, I had an audition where I had to play a stripper. Um, and you have to say like, are you willing to be topless for the role? And I said, you know, yes. But this whole time I'm like, I have a huge bruise right here and I don't know if I'm even going to have the breast. And, you know, I did the audition and um, uh, then went to go to Cedars and um, and I brought a friend. Uh, the minute the doctor walked in, she was like, I'm so glad you brought a friend because yeah, it's cancer. Like she just got right into it and obviously immediately bawling and, and you know, it's, it's interesting in like movies and, and television when someone first hears they have that, then the, the artistic choice is to have like wop, 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 like you can't hear anything else after that. And yeah. that's what it's like. I don't remember anything. They were able to see that the size was 4.5 and a five is like stage three. So I was stage two B, I was pretty close to stage three. And they said, you have you have the BRCA gene. Uh, so uh, so I, I got tested, they found out it's, you know, it's um, part of my family history, but- Did you know that? No, and I hadn't talked to my mom and since 2016 when Trump was elected because um, she is she was a Trump supporter um, and so we hadn't spoken and 
she's like, you're going to have to call your mom, have your mom get a blood test, have, you know, and so it was a really weird moment to speak to my mom for the first time in three years and have to say, hey, I have, actually I did it in an email. It was just a paragraph, like, I have breast cancer, you're supposed to get checked too. It was like really, I had a, a massive amount of support from my friends and my chosen family in that way. And so I never felt too, like I never felt like I was gonna fall. I always had someone there with me. Um, and so for that reason, I didn't, I felt like, I knew because I had BRCA, I'm gonna get them both off because the chances are. So it's like, that was an easy decision. Um, can I still breastfeed? And they said no, and I I cried so hard. That to me was almost worse than hearing I was gonna lose my breast. I was like, wait, cause I've always had just this vision of having a child. Like even when I was a teenager, just like pretend, pretending to have this bonding moment, I just thought it would be such a beautiful moment. And even hearing that I can't do that with a future child, um, I don't know, I just felt so, just so crushed, you know. I love the, uh, in Al-Anon they say, you know, if God leads you to it, they'll lead you through it. And, you know, so I think that with the universe, like, it, everything's going to happen the way it's supposed to happen. So back to just like kind of the journey at the beginning of being diagnosed, like, so that was two years ago now, or? I was diagnosed July 8th in 2018. Well, I had, done two egg retrieval surgeries, trying to like, you know, I've always wanted to be a mom and um, I'm 39. And so my eggs are already in a certain state. So they were like, you're gonna wanna pull some eggs before chemo because chemo ages your eggs by 10 years. So I was under, I was under so much stress though that I, I only got one egg per surgery. Um, and who knows if they're even viable. But anyway, that was the first thing I had to focus on was all these hormones, all you know, all, all of those things that a lot of women have been through, but I never thought I'd have to. On top of all the stress and stuff, I was just kind of Ugh, like, yeah. Um, and then the stress of waking up and being like, we got one, you know, and I'm like, what the fuck? Like I've had friends that got 30 eggs, you know, I, and I was told I was very fertile and would never have trouble having a child. And so I was always just pretty confident in that way. And so having that confidence taken away uh, was very hard. So I think I've been grieving for years. I, I just had the, my ovaries removed in October. I've done, I do a lot of rituals with my friends. I was like rented an Airbnb and had specific friends that I had, that I knew had certain energy. Said, I just want us to all be topless and I want us to all kind of just like celebrate our own breasts and like howl into the into the night and my friend Janelle led it and it was so beautiful. I'm trying to remember the song. Um, I release control and surrender to the soul of love that will heal me. I'm not doing it right, but we sung that over and over and even in like a row. And it was so that I'll never forget laying down, like looking up at the sky, hearing all those voices singing. And so, and then I had my double mastectomy a few days later. And then I found out I need chemo because uh, the risk of recurrence was like 47%. So um, I started chemo in October. I had 16 rounds of very aggressive um, chemo treatments, um, one every week. And I would have them on Monday so that I could dance and do my, my Sunday dance things on Sunday. And 
yeah, just kind of um, lost it all, you know? You really, you, you uh, obviously you're stripped from so much when you are diagnosed with breast cancer specifically to even just lose your breasts. I was so, I thought my breasts was like my, my thing. Like I loved the shape of them and they were small and they were handful and, but they were, in my mind, they were perfect. And so I loved unbuttoning my shirts to reveal them was like, I, I would like masturbate to that thought. Um, and so, and to have the person be like, whoa, like those are perfect. Like that was my, my sex dream. So that being taken, like having the thing that I thought was my, mm, um, taken away and being told I had to have implants and they would be bigger than the breasts I had before. If anything, I wanted smaller. Um, so we tried to give me the smallest implants that we had. It looked so alien-like because they don't make implants for breast cancer patients. They just make them for women that want their boobs bigger. Um, and so I was told I could either get implants. I, I said I wanted to go flat um, because I was like, if it's either jugs or flat, I'd rather flat. Um, and they, she, my doctor was like, if you really want to go flat, I'm, I'm going to leave skin though. Cause if you change your mind, you know, so you'll have like little Sherpa, like saggy skin for a while. And I was like, that's, that sucks. And so I chose implants and they were, I hated my body with them. I hated that. I looked, I felt like I was a sex robot. I felt like none of my clothes fit the same um it was always in the way of sleep and dance was different and even going to the beach um and wearing a bikini like having these like shiny circles like they were always shiny i was like embarrassed by them i'm like oh i don't want anyone to think that i'm this person that like wanted a, a perfect circle orb i would call them then i've had so many reconstruct reconstructive surgeries trying to figure out how to make them more that in a way that I could live with them. So switch surgeons, uh, fat grafting to try to, you know, cause you could see the implant. It was like, like right on the side, they would have to add fat. It's so much trauma to the body. Um, so I've had four reconstructive surgeries in two years. Yeah. Double mastectomy then getting that, um, temporary like expanders out new ones in fat grafting another one we swapped it out for a different size tried to go smaller looked weird um so then went and got a different shape um implant but that was recalled and it was like there it can cause a rare blood disease and cause cancer um and it rotated, um, so I had to get a surgery anyway. So I was like, let's, let's just get him out and I'll go flat. And that surgeon, he's amazing. Um, and he's like, why don't we just build a breast out of fat? And I was like, is that an option? Uh, yeah. He's like, yeah, we'll only be able to make like an A cup. I'm like, that's what I'm Yeah. So I'm, it's a two-part surgery. I have the, another, the second part. Right now they're, there's, um, they're very small, but they're kind of like raisiny and he'll fill them in soon. I know if that was told, asked, you know, as an option, presented as an option, I would have chose that. So I don't know why, maybe it's money. Maybe they have their hands in like the implant industry or I, I'd hate to think that that's what it is, but um, it is an option to only use fat to make your breast. And I feel like women should know that.
Then I lost my ovaries on October 14th. I've been in menopause since, um, because my cancer was estrogen positive, so they have to keep your estrogen levels low, so they shut down my ovaries. So my ovaries have been shut down since I was diagnosed anyway. So it didn't feel like suddenly I had menopause. It was like now it's just permanent menopause. Um, so yeah, so now I'm in menopause and pleasure of sex has been stripped away. Sex is extremely painful. Not There's no desire to have it because of how painful it is. Um, and I miss the euphoria of sex <laughs> so much. We hope you're enjoying this episode so far. We wanted to take a moment to remind you that if you're moved by what you're hearing, you can watch the video version of this interview on our YouTube channel and learn more about how you can join in on our mental health awareness campaign with Spring Health by following us on Instagram at stylelikeyou and at spring.health. Now back to this episode. Do you ever just honor like how strong you are? I, f- I, I don't know if I would say I've honored myself, um, but I can acknowledge that um, sharing and being so transparent about my cancer experience has helped a lot of women, um, but it also helped me because I don't think there should be a shame around it, it feel, or like some secret, and obviously, however anyone wants to go through it is okay, but for me, I felt like keeping um, anything private in that way would feel like sh- like it was me feeling shame, like embarrassment of it. So in my mind, I I was very transparent for for my own sake as well. I could I could share, and my friends wouldn't be texting me like, "What happened with the bot?" You know, you just look on my Instagram, and now I don't have to say the sentence and update all my friends. So it really was for myself, and then through helping other people just from that. Um, So in my mind, that wasn't brave. Uh, It was like what saved me in that time. Um, Being full transparent about the ups and downs of of breast cancer um, and trying to get through it with as much joy as possible. I think that that's brave, trying to get through something so dark um, by still dancing, still, finding the lesson, um, especially with breast cancer, there's maybe 9,700 lessons that you're supposed to learn, like taking away what made you feel the most feminine, taking away something that represents motherhood, um, taking away the pleasure of sex, taking away even even friendships. I've lost friendships. I've lost, um, the, lost my hair. Um, and so I guess when you are you come out the other side positive, I guess that is bravery. Um, but I I I don't feel brave sometimes because you could say I feel like people think that I am, um, but I think it takes a lot of um, a lot of prep, preparation before I'm even on the the high board to dive into it. What what are the downsides that you know that lead to the upsides? I mean, in order to get through a lot of this was ritual, um, and so having having it, you know, before I lost my ovaries, I had a, another group of women, and we all sat in a circle, and I had everyone bring something that meant something from their childhood, and we all went around and 
put it in the middle of the Mandela and would explain explain why that thing reminded them of motherhood or their childhood. And then I would lay down and um, on top of all the things everyone left and everyone came up and whispered something to my ovaries and um, like something to my, my future child someday. And it's things like that that made me feel way more prepared for the high dive of of these big surgeries or these big losses. Um, just sort of the ceremonial um, confidence. You can label anything you want a ritual. Um, I, I love dance and dance means so much to me. My mom owned a dance studio when I was little and um, so I've, I've been feeling dance since I was young, but one of the um, one of the things I asked my friends to do the day that I got my ovaries out was like, I came up with a little dance and I had a kind of like in the OA, how they had that dance that they did. So I, I came up with something and was like, everybody at 10 o'clock do this dance. And they did. And, and um, I, I swear I felt it. Um, and so that made me feel support and, and just things like that made me feel in control. It made me feel in control and connected with a higher, a higher purpose. I surrendered. Yeah, exactly. Where, where do boundaries come in? And like, where do? Hmm. Um, I think I've only recently even learned the, the word boundaries. I'd be the friend that like, if someone texts me like, hey, what can you give me notes on this thing? I'll immediately pull over and like spend 20 minutes and make myself late for something. You know, I learned about boundaries through going through my cancer treatments. You can cancel a plan. You can tell someone you're too tired. I think that was a, a, a true gift to actually be able to, to get that respect or understanding. Now coming out of it and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I am cancer free. So it's like, I don't have that golden ticket, so to speak, of permission. And it still carries over. And especially now in the pandemic, everybody's just taking care of themselves and working, going through some really dark healing. And so I just think we're all going to be entering a place where it's, everyone has permission to take care of themselves and prioritize themselves first. Did you have a partner throughout all of this? Or? Yeah, I did. I did connect with a guy um, before I was diagnosed and um, we never met up, but we he kept in, in touch lightly through Instagram, just like responding with a heart to stories and stuff. And um, and then finally, my hair was like just growing back out and I had my first date with him and he met me outside of a therapy appointment. And um, yeah, we, we've been together ever since. And what's beautiful, I think, is that he's um, he's a horticulturist. So his his job is planting seeds and patience and letting things grow and like really taking care of um, really delicate, beautiful flowers. And has it how has it been for you to like let someone in like to your body and like all of those things? I think the first time the first time I had sex um, with him, I was so well because I had the big um, orbs. I, I didn't feel confident, of course. Um, I think I would have been more confident with just scars and not like nothing than that. So there was just a lot of like um, him asking, like, can, can you feel anything? Do you want me to acknowledge the breasts? Do you want me to ignore them? You know, because there's zero sensation. Um, and that was another bummer because that was, you know, I'd love a little nipple flick or something before and now <laughs> I don't, I can't feel anything. But I, I did keep my nipples and that is um, 
I'm grateful that I did get to keep them. But I didn't know the answer to those questions when he asked. I'm like, I don't know. Um, I guess try treating them like I can feel something and let's see what. So there was a lot. He was very sweet. He, um, he's been through so much himself. He knows how to communicate. He's very gentle and understanding. And so he was almost, he's like the perfect person to date after, after this because he was so, um, wants to communicate about everything before sex, you know, like what would you like, what to do, what, you know. I said, try to just pretend that I can feel them. And it just felt awkward because I knew that he was doing it like just for me. And it was obviously the most, um, one of the most emotional times to have sex because there's zero um, sexual excitement. It's all just like nerves. Like, what is this gonna be like? What will it feel like? And then the actual sex, of course, was so incredibly painful that um, I just kind of, we didn't have much sex because of it. So we, um, yeah, I'm still, I mean, our whole relationship, we maybe had sex like seven times. We've been together for a year and a half. Um, it's just because it's just that, that bad. We actually, um, we broke up a, right before the pandemic and remained really close friends because, you know, a pod kind of thing. Um, so our, we spent the, that time not putting pressure on each other is like, you know, because sex is, was off the table, so was kissing. Um, and so we spend all that time just as friends connecting in a deep way because we're still, I'm, you know, I still have this crazy surgery coming up and I'm going through so much. And, um, and now, and, and we wound up getting back together in, um, right before Christmas. Um, and uh, we, 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 um, we met in a, in a cemetery before getting back together. We always go to cemeteries during the pandemic. It, it's like a untapped spot cause it's like, it's a park, but it's not really. Um, <laughs> and there's a lot of depth, depth to it. Um, anyway, but we went to the cemetery and had a, a really nice chat and made, had a make out and we made out for the first time in a long time. I, my previous boyfriend, the, the guy that helped me through cancer, I would be begging him for kit for a kiss. Like it was became like some joke where I'm like I'm going like this, and he's like, no, no, like we can't. Kit. It always leads to sex, and I don't want to have sex right now. I feel like I've spent so much time like begging for begging for kisses, and um, so to I, I had this like makeout that felt amazing. It we definitely were like, yep, we're back together. Like that was a, a clear moment. Um, and we wound up like having sex in the cemetery, um, which I don't, I hope that that's okay. It didn't hurt. Um, and I think it's because there was so much excitement. And so it, it, that was like a little sliver of hope for me that it, yeah, the sex did not hurt. You know, earlier you talked about like, you know, how you, how the switch from like not, you know, wanting to take your life to like fighting for your life, like, was that, something that you were like conscious of, like, whoa, now I'm fighting for my life. Like, do I want to fight for my life? Even even a week after trying to take my life, I, I knew that that would have, I'm so grateful that I didn't. I think it's such a fleeting moment, that decision to try even is, um, like I, I, I worked at the, the suicide hotline for a little bit to kind of like help in that way. And it's such a strange place to be because, um, no one can really like 
understand exactly where you're at. Um, but um, coming through the other side of that and, and now knowing I want to live, I had already wanted to live when I was diagnosed. So it wasn't like I was still contemplating taking my life or not. What do you, what do you think, what do you think that moment was the wanting to take what what was dying inside of you that want needed to die but that didn't want to die altogether i just felt completely misunderstood um i felt like trapped in my own body i felt trapped in my desire to um be um um i felt like there was some, for some reason, I felt like I couldn't communicate um, enough to be understood. I felt like, um, and with with the misophonia, that was a, I would say that was like 60% of it too, because it got so bad that I just felt like I'm like, I'm never gonna. Um, I looked up ways, you know, some people with misophonia have special earpieces that plug, have like white noise happening in their ear the whole time. I'm like, I, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to live like this either, where I'm constantly like clocking who's, okay, shit, she had, she's opening a, a, a mint. I have to, like, it's, it's, I feel like I'm trapped in my brain and I still, I still do um, in that way. But um, I had just gone, gone through a breakup. Um, I, my, it was when my mom and I stopped talking and, you know, it was like two weeks later that I tried to take my life. I, I can look in, uh, in an empathetic way in, in retrospect. I have, still have my mom in my life. Um, it was a, my, my personal decision to remain in contact with her, even if it's just sometimes through text. So many people um, come up to me because um, I've been so open about having cancer and they say my sister had breast cancer and so I understand and and I'm like did she is she okay it she got through it it did come back two years later and she didn't make it um, but I keep hearing this two 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 years it came back two years it came back um, and so I have this fear that it's gonna come back and I'm trying to live um, my life as if you know, I only had to. And so what would I, if, if I found out I was dying tomorrow, you know, um, in two years from now, what will I wish I have done? And I know that I, it would not be like, didn't talk to mom that whole time, like set that firm boundary. Like it would be to connect with her as much as I possibly can, trying to understand each other and kind of like heal instead of bury. And so it's like, my focus is like, rebuilding my relationship with my mom and my family. And I also want to travel a lot. Uh, I want to like see the world. When do you feel the most vulnerable? Mm. Huh. I, maybe, maybe I feel the most vulnerable when I take away defensive reactions um, and try, maybe, maybe that's when I feel the most vulnerable. I mean, I feel vulnerable so much. I feel vulnerable um, taking off my clothes. I feel felt vulnerable, um, uh, you know, sharing. Um, I felt vulnerable speaking to you guys about all of this. I felt really vulnerable. I, I don't know when I'm the most vulnerable um, because I constantly feel like I am <laughs> um, lately. When was the last time you cried? Other than today. Other than today. Uh, the last time I cried was um, 
uh, last night with a friend um, talking about um, the the bra, um, mm-hmm. the bra, and um, talking with my friend about how I'm going to be taking off my clothes and um, like just kind of sitting here in a very exposed way and how that um, really made me feel so many different kinds of things and so that's the last time I cried was just talking about today and Mm. this interview and this moment and yeah I feel very protective of my body um, and because it doesn't look the way that I would want it to look or the way it used to look it still doesn't feel like me and that is definitely something that you learn after especially after being clinically poked and prodded and having your body, um, you know, mangled and um, manipulated and um, spoken in such a clinical way. Um, I, I, I'm like, this is like, this is me and this is all I have. Um, and that's great. And, and no matter what happens to it, no matter who's like, it's, it's still, I still have my heart. I still have, um, all my memories and that's that's me when do you feel the most beautiful i feel most beautiful when i'm dancing um i feel the most free when i'm dancing um i feel the most me what's beautiful is that um the way your body chooses to move and react to music or whatever feeling is to me the most magical thing um I really do believe that everybody can dance and um, and when you take away that whatever you someone told you that you couldn't dance at some point in your life and um, or that you look silly or something and so so many people don't have they, they don't have this freedom of, of dance in them and I'm like please please you have to because you'll feel so once you're finally let go of what it looks like yeah. and how silly you might feel or like to go full out and and like just go for it is when I feel the most beautiful. Last question. Um, why in your body, in your skin, in your journey, why why is it a good place to be? Hmm. I think it's a well, it's kind of what I was just thinking about was the feeling like, you know, you, you go on a roller coaster and then like you, you're done and like you come back and you're like waiting and you're waiting to get off of it. But like that feeling is um, you can feel that every day. And I feel like that's something to live for is like that that feeling of like, whoa, I got through it and I kind of want to go again. You know, um, you just have to surrender. And I think surrendering is, is the biggest thing that I've learned through my whole entire diagnosis is you can't stress and overthink so much. These things are gonna happen anyway. And you just kind of don't waste your brain real estate on, on the stress. Just surrender and trust and know that this is for a reason. Every encounter you have is for a reason. Um, and I think that's an exciting way to live life. How do you feel now that you've revealed your what you were nervous about body-wise and everything. I feel really excited. I feel relieved and I feel like, um, (laughs) yeah, I feel way different than I did on the drive over here where I was so nervous. So I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. That was just absolutely like a gift. We hope you were inspired by this episode. Until next week, that's it from me, Elisa. And me, Lily. If you were touched by this story, please take a moment to share this episode with any friends or family 
who can benefit from understanding that they are enough as they are. And if you agree that facades separate us and being radically honest brings us together, please help spread the movement for radical self-acceptance by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. Thank you again to Spring Health for supporting us in our mental health episodes of What's Underneath. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at stylelikeyou and at spring.health for more details on how you can be involved in sharing your story as part of our mental health awareness campaign and support one another in feeling less alone in our struggles. We can't skip ahead to a happy ending or live inside a photoshopped image or an Instagram filter. There's no finding oneself when glossing over the truth.